Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. This is a sample of our recent bonus episode. Every couple of weeks or so, our crew of researchers, Amanda and myself, get together for a roundtable discussion. So here's a few minutes for free so you can see what all the fuss is about. Which brings me to this idea that I've been kicking around that I, I still don't think I have it fully uh, mapped out myself, but come with me on, on a little bit of a trip. Let's talk about Downton Abbey and how liberals who watch PBS love a show about aristocracy and extreme wealth inequality. Doesn't seem like that would be our bag, but like that, that show and others like it attract audiences that on the surface, I think should be surprising. I mean, the, the guy who made Downton Abbey is like very, I mean, he's de- <laughs> he, he sounds like a monarchist definitely uh, has, has talked about that. Married to and, a lady in waiting. Um, oh, right. And there are specific examples that can sort of help explain how a show about a, horrible system that no American should ever uh, sign on for the the way the show sort of makes itself palatable. And so so there's an article, I think Salon wrote about this years and years ago, and they talk about how the way the class system is talked about, they really emphasize how not just livelihood, but also dignity is sort of obtained or received by the servants by doing their jobs. And so it's like this, you know, beneficial act that the aristocrats are doing by giving work to these servants and allowing them to adjust their cufflinks or whatever. And so uh, a writer in, um, In The Guardian, Tanya Gold wrote, in Downton Abbey, the class system exists for the benefit of those at the bottom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is, which is of course not true, but that sort of makes it palatable for us to watch. And so when you take specifics like that, like, okay, I, I can see how this show is, is palatable, but why are we even attracted to it in the first place? And I think the same article pulls quotes from other progressive Downton Abbey fans. <laughs> and one person said that the show spends as much time on the servants as on the titled folks, which is itself progressive. And then it demonstrates how the rigid class structure is clearly oppressive for everyone involved, not just the servants who suffer from it. So, okay, like, that's that's one angle. We'll set that aside for a moment. A political communication strategist said that it was very much like the West Wing and said, quote, I actually think it's a lot like the West Wing. Lord Grantham is the platonic ideal of an English aristocrat, just like Jed Bartlett was the platonic ideal of an American president. And the article sort of goes on to say that, you know, even if a democratically elected president differs in earned legitimacy from an earl. Both involve a great man shaping history. And Max Reed, a writer at Gawker, is maybe the only person in, in this article who says anything that makes sense, says 
that of the analogy, quote, both shows suffer from operating under ideas of politics and history that focus on the individual actor rather than the system. So the nobility and selflessness of Bartlett and the Earl justify the systems in which they work. It's a very classically conservative notion of history, end quote. And so to me, that is the entry point to this phenomenon. And what I have been realizing over and over again with lots of different types of stories is that very few stories, no matter how progressive they sound, are written in a structurally progressive way. Just like Downton Abbey and The West Wing can evoke ideas of progressive values and make you think, ah, see, like the writers of this show about aristocracy are poking holes and demonstrating the problems with inherited wealth, etc. But the show itself, the whole structure of it is based on, on this sort of individualistic framing. And that is not progressive. And so as, as I said, I'm still working my way through this. So like Gone with the Wind, it's the second most popular book in America after the Bible. And people to this day love it. And 99.5% of them would say that they think slavery is bad and shouldn't exist, but they love Gone with the Wind. Down Abbey similarly attracts a progressive crowd who would never agree with aristocracy, but they love to like wade around in some <laughs> strange nostalgia for a bygone era. Um, medieval times, you know, you got your King Arthur's and your Robin Hood's, that sort of thing. Again, people love those stories, but if they existed in real life, if the environment that those stories are in were suggested that we bring them back, everyone would be like, no, 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 please. Anything but that. And, and then Lord of the Rings, like a little bit similar. I mean, I, I'd never, before this conversation, I'd never heard any political ideology being attached to Lord of the Rings. It just seemed like the sort of, uh, it's a fantasy story and everybody loves it. But progressives can love Lord of the Rings and be really excited at the end of the third book when the rightful king regains his <laughs> throne, right? Like, there's no, there's no suggestion that he's so good he abolished the monarchy. No, like, we're just glad that the right king is, is in power. And so not, not to bandwagon too much and not because I'm envious that Amanda has her own <laughs> principle, but I, I think, I think the J principle sort of sidecars nicely with the Amanda principle. And it is this is that as with political arguments, it is simply easier to tell stories that fit a conservative view of the world. Like it is always easier for conservatives to make their point than for progressives to counterpoint. Right. Like they can say what they want to say in a sentence and we have to write out two paragraphs. And in storytelling with heroic individual actors driving the story and oversimplified ideas of right and wrong, good and evil, what is easy to tell as a story fits the frame of a conservative worldview. And so our stories, no matter how progressive we want to make them, are structured conservatively. And since stories are consumed through our own lenses, we can then interpret conservative framing as promoting progressivism, but it's always going to be a sort of sad imitation, not the real thing, because depicting 
truly progressive movements is just so much harder for storytellers. I mean, even, even progressive movements that we try to tell stories about, you know, the civil rights movement, right? We can't help but just tell the story about Martin Luther King. And those who like really deeply understand that story lament that we can't give credit to the thousands, tens of thousands of others who worked in the movement. I mean, did the work on the ground were integral to that movement's success, but no one knows how to tell that story. No one knows how to tell a story with like fleshed out characters and movement and arc, but we can tell Martin Luther King's story, the great man theory of history, right? So I don't know what to do with this exactly other than I feel like I'm beginning to understand how stories get told the way they do and how not just the stories that are told or the values that are imparted through the stories, but the structures of the stories themselves and how that works against progressive thinking in, in, you know, in reading stories, taking inspiration from stories, analyzing stories and so forth. I don't know. Does anyone have thoughts on this? Build the wall. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's the three words, put whatever you want on it, make it fit mm -hmm. whatever you, you want it to fit. And you can elect a cartoonishly clownish person Yeah, that, I mean, it, it is difficult. It is really complicated to tell a story that has thousands of people because you know, like we're hardwired to not even know more than, you know, X amount of people. So when you start talking about stories, especially like the civil rights movement, like, well, there's uh, countless characters. We're going to learn about each and every one of them. You're going to remember who they are. That was like the, the Game of Thrones kind of comes into mind on this one. Like the original beginning of, if you watch the TV show versus the books, the original, like it, it's got all these people and like a lot of people were turned off by how many people you had to re remember. And then it right. keeps condensing down and it keeps condensing down and it keeps condensing down. And then, you know, when the, the showrunners became the writers, it turns into just this traditionalist, like one guy has to, save the the whole thing one girl ends the the entire zombie white walker right. army and one king is needed to set everything back right like that's just yeah. the it went from possibly progressive i mean you know game of thrones there's a lot of criticisms um, on it not being progressive but to absolutely just a conservative story mm -hmm. and it's just, it is easier. Like those guys aren't as good a writers as the original writer. And it shows because it's mm -hmm. very difficult to make a bunch of characters seem like real people as opposed to making one person seem like a real person. You know, when you said that, I, for some reason, my mind went to um, the movie Selma, which I thought for a movie trying to tell the story of many, many people, it did a decent job. It kind of zoomed in, in different moments on different people and gave you a sense of what they were doing in their local community or, you know, whatever. And it did highlight people that you might've heard of, but also people who didn't, who, who you didn't hear of and that they kind of created representations of these people who were working in the movement. And that was probably the closest I've ever seen to <laughs> storytelling in that 
way. I think there, there's probably been something else, you know, along those lines. But yeah, it's it's harder. It's much harder. And look, every Disney movie is about a princess. She marries a prince. And we don't talk about the horrors of the monarchy. We just are really excited for her that she's the queen now. <laughs> and that's nice and simple. Mm-hmm. Is it harder? Or is it not as profitable? Both, or like a, a risk to do a story that's pretty deviated from the norm. Because to me, like I get the, I don't, I don't think it's harder. I think it's how we teach writing, how you learn how to write, how you learn how to storytell that take us again into that capitalistic mindset versus if we didn't have capitalism, we'd probably write vastly different stories, which I know is like probably not a good argument because like capitalism is here. So like, what do we do about it now? (laughs) But you know, I mean the, the, the hero's journey predates capitalism by thousands of years. You know, Amanda, who's the guy whose name I always forget who knows all this. Yeah. Joseph Campbell, who's now passed away. If if you really want to dive into the structure of storytelling, look up his long form interview with um, Bill Moyers. And they just dive deep (laughs) into the world of human stories and archetypes and how every story that's ever been told gets told over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. And like, we have these certain, like it's almost evolutionary. It is almost that the stories we tell are the ones that stick in our brains because our brains have receptors for them. And if, if our brains don't have a receptor for a story, then that story dies away. And so the stories that stand the test, test of time are the ones that can successfully implant themselves in our brains and convey meaning, convey history, convey, you know, important lessons generation to generation. And, and like those sort of archetypal stories are, I mean, they're definitely in the small frame, like only a handful of characters to follow, et cetera. And and so I don't, I don't doubt that capitalism has influenced what stories get told, but in terms of what stories people are able to process, I think that that's like a 10,000 year old problem. So I think just to clarify, I more or less meant like how we would evolve into storytelling that like, I understand what you're saying, like early on limitations, obviously your world was a lot smaller when you weren't traveling around. You couldn't get on a plane and go visit, you know, other people or there wasn't as much awareness of what the world fully encompassed. More or less, I would just wonder if we could have changed like the telling stories now so that we could comprehend those like larger tales instead of being so hyper fixated on individuals. Cause I still think you can convey and implant yourself in like other people's brains telling a larger story. Um, because even when we look at individual storytelling, most of the reasons why people really get invested is because they identify with like pieces, but you can do that with groups as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not just an individual. It's just kind of how we evolved into it. Yeah. I, I do want to just say real quick, just one caveat about Joseph Campbell. He has, you know, those, those interviews are from the eighties. I still think a lot of what he says is valid, but he has been criticized for not diving into kind of focusing a little more on, 
on cultures that, well, on white cultures. <laughs> and so he didn't dive as deep into certain parts of the world. And when you dive deep into those parts of the world, it turns out their stories are very different. It's just what dominated. And, you know, he was able to find the patterns in what dominated, but he did miss some stuff. And I, and we all, I kind of wonder now <laughs> more than ever, what was that stuff he missed? How different were those stories structurally? And then the other thing I was thinking about, Aaron, when you're talking about capitalism in these stories, like, so for instance, like a story like the Hunger Games, it is the story of overthrowing a government. That's what it is, which is kind of badass and cool, right? <laughs> um, and yet it still focuses on one person to save them all. Like, yes, it's a woman. Yes, it's, you know, um, a story of, of taking down horrific oppression and, you know, unchecked power, but it is still a hero's story, right? That's so, like, it for today's we, free sample. Paying members are who make this entire show context, possible, and so these bonus episodes involved. are really think, just a fun way to say thanks to them for their support. In addition to these full bonus episodes, members also get bonus clips in every single regular episode, as well as perks in our Discord community. The Discord community is free for anyone to join, but there's a members-only area where recommendations of all kinds are shared, both from listeners and producers of the show. So if you'd like to be our newest member, you can sign up at bestofleft.com slash support directly from our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you can't afford a membership, I offer free financial hardship memberships. Just drop me an email to j at bestofleft.com and we will get you all set up no questions asked. Or again, to sign up, visit bestoftheleft.com slash support. Thanks for listening. Thank you.